Unrivaled, the official podcast of Penn State football. Welcome into the Unrivaled podcast, the official podcast of Penn State football. We're going to go outside of the program again and welcome back an alumni of the 1994 undefeated Rose Bowl team, a two-time All-Big Ten selection and a consensus All-America as a senior Number 81, Kyle Brady. Now, you were just telling me before we even started this thing that you were a pilot. You arrived here via private aviation. Tell me how you became a private pilot, or pilot in general, I should say. Yeah, so I kind of came from a military family. My dad was 82nd Airborne. My brother was Army Special Forces and a Ranger. I joke with them. I said, I, I used to say, uh, you guys, why do you jump out of a perfectly good airplane? But growing up in that type of environment, my dad was a big military historian as well. We used to make model airplanes. So we used to build like uh, World War II era airplanes, like the um, Spitfire, the British Spitfire, which was a key airplane in, in the protection of Britain in the, the Battle of Britain in the ni- late 1930s. And we built like a P-51 Mustang and the German Messerschmitt and things like that. So I kind of grew up with a little bit of a fascination for airplanes. I had these models in my room growing up and driving back and forth to practice when I was with the Jaguars for the eight years that I played there. um, I went by a a small community airport called Craig Airport and I'd see these airplanes landing and taking off when I was at a stoplight and I thought that looks kind of fun, kind of fascinating. I think that'd be really cool freedom to enjoy And, and maybe even some of those memories came back from growing up years. So one spring, when I had a decent amount of time in the off season, which we all did, we enjoyed a nice off season, which a good bit of free with a good bit of free time. Um, I said, I'm going to go in there and take a lesson. So I did, and uh, and at first, honestly, I didn't like it. I, I you know, football is already a fairly risky profession, and I perceived at the time that it was fairly risky what I was doing. And I was a big guy in a small airplane, and my head was bouncing off the ceiling <laughs> of the plane. And I just was like, Why am I doing this? What? And I thought, you know, let me just stick with it, not quit just get my private license, my initial license and see, you know, when I'm actually able to enjoy the freedom of going somewhere, you know, cause when you're doing your training, you're just sort of doing maneuvers and learning all these different flight techniques, how to land, which are all cool things, but it's not as exciting as the, uh, thought and the aspect, the whole opportunity to go somewhere a couple hundred miles away, you know, in the Florida, you can go to the Bahamas or the keys and or you can go up to the mountains in North Carolina, which we now do regularly and just so many freedoms that it unlocks. And, um, and yeah, so I'm glad I stuck with it and I'm still doing it to this day. How about that for the start of a podcast? Kyle Brady, not only a former NFL vet, but also a pilot as well. Now, Kyle, we're going to shift pages pretty quickly here. And uh, we just had the opportunity to take you around the last football complex and kind of show you what the upgrades have been like that James Franklin and his staff have done. Now, from your time here on campus, when you arrive to where it's at now, what sticks out? I mean, it's incredible. I I thought when we were here, we had it so good, and we had a very posh environment with a football lounge. I mean, our football lounge for the players was like a a room with leather couches and some a TV, and I thought that was amazing that we had that. And we also had a nice study hall area with desks and and proctors and people that would help us not necessarily do our work for us by any means, but at the same time be there for us to help us and help us work through any issues we might have with our our, our schoolwork and and a great weight room. Um, but now this is just beyond anything I would have ever imagined. And I imagine the players probably here take it for granted because that's kind of what we all tend to do uh, no matter where we are. But I mean, it's like a country club. Uh, (laughs) I hope it just doesn't doesn't make them soft. But then again, at the same time, this is probably what the majority of the big time division one football facilities look like. You know, I imagine this is as good as any. I can't imagine how it could be much, uh, much better. But um, 
at the same time, I'm sure to compete with recruiting and all the other things that go into the game these days, uh, this is probably very similar to other facilities. What can you say about the job that Coach Franklin and his staff has done? You mentioned to me earlier that he's such a player's coach. Speak on that behalf as far as how he kind of, you've seen him relate to what Penn State and that brand is. It's amazing the changes that have occurred here over the last, um, you know, what, 10 decade or so since uh, Joe Paterno ended up. And, and obviously this place owes its reputation, its foundation, its legacy to Coach Paterno and all that he did and built here from the late 1940s when he got here all the way to 1965 when he became the head coach and then for 40-some years of being the head coach. But, uh, you know, Coach Franklin is just – he's definitely a, a 21st century coach. I mean – He's such a high-energy guy. He's the kind of guy that just lights up a room when he comes in, and uh, but just so genuine in, in, in from what I've seen and been able to experience of him. And um, I think it's just infectious, and, and the players know that it's genuine and that he, he seems to really have their best interest at heart and building on the foundation of what was already laid here. And... Um, and just connects with them. You know, I, I had a chance to a couple of years ago be up here for a team meeting with a couple of other former Penn Staters, Michael Haynes and Blair Thomas. We were here for a golf tournament. He just spontaneously asked us to go in and uh, speak at, to the team, you know, say a few words just briefly. And, uh, you know, seeing the environment of the, even the team meeting, the squad meeting, as we used to call them, there was uh, just high energy and music playing. The guys were dancing and have a good time. I thought, wow, this is a totally different world. We all kind of remarked on it and joked about how it was a totally different world than what the kind of program that Joe ran. And neither was wrong. And, uh, and, and you know, both worked in, in various generations. Um, and I think Joe Paterno's way and methodology and philosophy would even work now with players because I think it's really about whether the players understand and sense and are aware of your concern for them. And we knew that Joe's style was out of concern for us. He wanted wanting the best for us. But obviously, at the same time, Coach Franklin's uh, philosophy and way of doing things works also. Because I think deep down, if the guys see that you genuinely care, uh, they're going to go out and compete and do the best they can for you. Let's jump back to uh, your time here at Penn State. But you had the opportunity to be a part of one of the most prolific offenses in college football. That's not a secret, and it still is to this date. Over 5,000 yards of total offense ranks number one in the Penn State charts. You guys average 7.6 yards per play, which is absolutely ridiculous. You had an average of 47.8 points per game, which, again, is off the charts. That still ranks number one at Penn State. And then 70 total touchdowns. That That ranks second behind the 2017 team here so think about all those years and what you guys accomplished and how those are still holding up in the record book today but when you have a chance to look back at it now what sticks out in your head about that system your offense and that year specifically well really I mean that year was a result of the commitment that was made several years prior by the players that were the key components and the core of that team really not just the key components and core every guy uh, you know, there were some teams here in the early part of my career in the early 90s that were very good, extremely talented. And uh, we even had a team that finished third in the country uh, in 1991. We beat the Tennessee Volunteers in the Fiesta Bowl and I think ended up in most polls in the, in the top, definitely in the top five, I think about number three. And uh, and then after that, there was some, some lean years, you know, uh, or well, 92 in particular. And there were some incredibly talented players on that team, but there was a number of players that didn't necessarily buy in to Joe's way of doing things and the way that uh, Joe knew. Uh, he knew how to fashion a winner, you know, and what it took to uh, – the kind of commitment it took to uh, and the sacrifice it took to go out and uh, win 
you know, the majority, if not all of your games to put yourself in position for championship type football in January. Uh, there's a number of guys that kind of, I think, wanted to do it their own way and um, just thought they knew a little better than the old man, as we used to call him, even though he was only maybe in his 60s at the time. But to us, that was old in our, you know, late teens and early 20s. But then um, that group that turned out to be the guys that made up that team in the 93 and 94, uh, we kind of got together and said, you know what, we've seen what doing it our own way and what this group that kind of showed us what doing it your own, their own way resulted in, which was um, too many losses, you know, and, and unfulfilled expectations and potential. And we said, why don't we go ahead and do it Joe's way and fully commit to this. And I mean, buy in, be here every summer together, working out, training, you know, watching film, running routes, getting used to each other. I mean, getting our timing down, doing everything we need to do. And let's see where it takes us because we knew we had some talent. I think in particular, I was a part of the 1990 recruiting class, which was a smaller class, only about 16 guys. But the following year's recruiting class, 1991, really was an inc- probably one of the top three recruiting classes. You know, at the time, I'm sure they were doing those kind of rankings. Unbelievable athleticism, um, you know, top to bottom. I mean, there was great linemen. There was great skill players. And that group, um, you know, included in that group was guys like Bobby Ingram and Jeff Hardings, Marco Rivera, Freddie Scott. I mean, um, we knew as those guys progressed and got older, matured, and, and they were all very hard workers, in addition to the fact that they're incredibly talented, we had something special and a chance to do something special with the combination of players we were going to have. So um, I'm kind of giving a long-winded answer here, but all these things kind of went into, uh, you know, you don't just kind of go out and field a team like that without putting a tremendous amount of work in and a tremendous amount of time developing that sense for each other and that sense of accountability for one thing, but even work ethic and, and just knowing that when, when things, that things got tough, we were going to, we were going to pull through and for each other, you know? And so we were going to be tested down the line in that 94 season a few times where had it not been for those moments that we'd committed to one another and to the coaches uh, years earlier, uh, all those things would not have come to pass. Well, speaking of tough times and overcoming some adversity, 1994, we're going to go back there. You guys are down 21 nothing at Illinois fighting for that Big Ten title. And then uh, you guys storm back in that final drive, and you got a little something like this. We're going to listen to one of your highlights. You ready for it? Sure. Ladies and gentlemen, you can just watch this next play unfold. Don't get any better than, than bigger than this one. It's third and three now at the five-minute mark. Penn State must get the ball out to the 15-yard line to keep it alive. We're inside of five minutes, and here we go. They're going to go against the three-man line. Got it. It's Brady. First down, Penn State. So you guys go 15 plays, 96 yards, and ultimately win that game. What do you remember about that one? Well, this is probably, I think it's called the drive now. Yep. Kind of like the Denver Broncos had the drive against the Cleveland Browns, I think, in the 1980s with John Elway. This is Penn State's the drive. And uh, I'll never forget it. And actually, I've even conversed about this drive with some guys who were on that Illinois defense to hear their point of view and perspective. And uh, we felt as if when we went on the field for that drive, literally, it's been well documented, you know, about Kerry coming to the huddle, TV timeout, kind of joking with us, all of us kind of joking with each other. We felt relatively certain, just about sure, to be honest, that we were going to drive down the field um, and score. Because in the second half, we kind of settled down. We figured things out. We got into a groove, got a rhythm, and uh, we started moving down the field. 
and, and we weren't stopped on many drives in the second half. And uh, even though they were the number one defense in the country and had some tremendous athletes, and anything could have happened. I mean, we could have had a, a botch play, a turnover. I mean, we weren't flawless by any means uh, as a team, but we just felt that uh, – and it, we – you know, they, they were very determined when we got the ball on that four-yard line. I'll never forget how, as we started to drive the ball down the field, and, and given what they'd experienced from the previous couple drives, that we were, had done that as well on previous drives, you started to sense this shift in their mentality and, and our mentality to some degree as well. Uh, you could see it in their eyes that they, they knew that it was over, that uh, they weren't going to stop us, even though they had some warriors on that team. I mean, Dana Howard two-time All-American middle linebacker, Simeon Rice, you know, ended up being, what, top five pick in the draft, uh, I think a year later. Kevin Hardy, uh, number three pick of the Jacksonville Jaguars. I mean, they had a loaded defense, and they were they were a bunch of warriors, but we just we had too much for them that day. And that last drive, I mean, that was just indicative of exactly what I was saying in my previous explanation of the commitment we'd made to each other, the confidence we had in one another. It was uh, unlike anything I probably had ever experienced on a football team. Fast forward a couple games, a couple weeks go by, and then you guys are headed to the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. I don't think some people realize the amount of preparation, the amount of work, everything from the season on, but to get to that week, taking back from Monday and then lead us up into the game and what the atmosphere was like here in Happy Valley, what you remember about that week. It was just a great treat. I mean, to have a chance to go out to Pasadena, California, and play in one of the, like they call it the granddaddy of mm-hmm. them all, right? The, one of the greatest bowl games with some of the greatest traditions and, and more legacy than any of the other bowl games out there. And um, we were all a, a little concerned, though, I think, a little on edge because ideally, right, uh, we would have had a chance to play against Nebraska, and we didn't care where it would have been. We would have played them in a cornfield in Nebraska if they wanted to. We just wanted the chance to show that we were the best team in the country. So it was a little bit bittersweet at the same time with all that work and all that time we put in for the right and the opportunity to show that we were the best. No one had beaten us on the field. And so, um, you know, we knew Oregon was going to be a, a good team, though, as well. They had a pretty prolific offense themselves, and they had won, obviously, the, the Pac-10. And um, but we were hoping for a chance to, for something a little different, a different scenario. And uh, – so there's the usual pregame anxiety, and uh, but I remember going out on the field in that in Pasadena, and every day there I think is a day just like ha- Happy Valley happens to be today. 74 degrees, no humidity. I mean, it's just a beautiful place. Mountains, you know, kind of rugged, rocky type uh, hills and mountains around. And um, I was just trying to take it in because at the same time I knew for all of us, I mean, it'd be the last time we played together. It'd be the last time I ever put on the blue and white. Uh, I was my senior year, my fifth year. I mean, what a way to cap it all off. And um, uh, just a real treat to go out there and play in that game and um, in that type of uh, environment. So first play of scrimmage. Nobody forgets that play. We're going to listen to that. And I wanted you to tell me, you remember the play call, what you were doing, where you were. That's just one of those that Penn State fans don't forget. But let's take a listen. Ready Scott is the man in motion. Here's Carter. He's gone. Goodbye. It'll be touchdown Penn State first play of the ball game. I mean, first play of the game. First play from scrimmage. You guys bust one. You go up 7 nothing. What do you remember about that one? I think it was a touchback. Uh, you know, so we had the ball in the 20-yard line, and we knew we had an unbelievable offense. I mean, you recited some of the statistics earlier, 47.8 points a game. Um 
we didn't think that Oregon had an overly strong defense. And uh, at the same time, you, every game you have to go out there and earn it. And um, I recall the play was uh, something that was going to my side. Uh, I don't remember the play. You know, I, I played in a couple offensive schemes now <laughs> and a couple shots to the heads in, in the intervening years. But it was something 36 or 38. So it was going kind of in the uh, – it was going to hit somewhere in the guard to tight end area. So I, think, I believe I had a down block on it, what's called a seven technique or inside technique defensive end. And I think some of the guys on the interior of the line, I just heard this in the last couple of years, that they botched a few of their blocks. You know, they, they, they messed something up. But um, – I think Keith Conlon and I had a, some pretty good blocks on the outside on the edge. And really, though, Kijan, I mean, he was just such an explosive player uh, with his speed and his power. And he, he got through the line of scrimmage pretty much untouched. And uh, and once he was in the open field at the college level especially, and, uh, you know, and he would change angles. You know, pl- defensive players would take a bad angle. They didn't sometimes, especially on the first play of the game, estimate his speed appropriately. And um, – once he got into the secondary of uh, Oregon's defense, it was over. I mean, I don't think literally he got touched by anyone on that play. You guys come back to Happy Valley after you win that one, the first Rose Bowl, Rose Bowl for Penn State. And I'm sure it's well documented as far as what you guys felt with the whole Nebraska situation and how you guys knew you were number one in the country and you wanted to prove that on the field. But what were the coming days like in Happy Valley, knowing that you had just won the granddaddy of them all, but you still got this uneasy feeling going on? Yeah, it was, um, like I said, it was kind of bittersweet. I mean, even the season, uh, that season, we'd gone out to Ann Arbor to beat a very good Michigan team that had, you know, in hindsight, even look back on some of those players eventual pro careers if, if you want to gauge it that way as far as talent they had a very talented team and uh we went to a very difficult environment there and one illinois and one and after the michigan game i think both polls had put us at number one so typically you feel like you have to do something to lose that ranking you know if you're the heavyweight champ or you're the number one ranked uh team you know out there you have to do something to lose that status and position and you know we we went and hammered uh Ohio State 63 to 14 a few weeks later and one of the polls dropped us down to number two so it just didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense so even during the season we're seeing these things that just make you scratch your head Uh, but at the same time we're trying as best we can and coach Paterno was encouraging us uh, to not get distracted by that because really which is what he always said to every team I think through every generation that stuff will all play out let that take care of ourselves. we just got to take care of He'd say, tend to our knittens, you know, take care of what we can take care of and control on the field. You can't, you can't control any of that, you know, which is all very true. And you don't want to get this too distracted by it and you'll end up getting upended, you know, and then, then none of it really mattered. So um, I guess, you know, afterwards, uh, as a senior, I mean, I was, I was kind of had began to get my focus already on what was next and the preparation I was going to need to start going through for even in February, you know, with the NFL combine. But at the same time, you know, getting back here to campus and I needed to finish up some credits and we, we, we all talked about it, you know, we all just felt like it was such a, an injustice and, and it wasn't just us, it happened to other teams uh, really even after our, after we played uh, and it's a good thing now that they, and Joe Paterno was always a big proponent of a playoff system, you know, and, um, and now here we see you know, years later, he was a bit of a prophet, you know, I think everyone wanted to see what we now have, which is uh, four teams. I think maybe it could even uh, go to eight. And I think that'd be even more exciting. You know, maybe have some of the playoff games at college campuses, the higher seeded college campus. I mean, how exciting would that be? You know, maybe you have Alabama has to go up to Ohio State in December, you know, uh, and deal with the adverse weather conditions or something of that nature, you know, or, or even 
vice versa. Penn State has to go down to Miami to play, and it happens to be a hot, humid day. So there's all different cool things that could come of that, and it's just unfortunate that something like that didn't exist back in our era. Draft night. Tell me uh, what you remember from draft night. Obviously, you guys had a ton of success when it came to the first round. Uh, Kajana Carter going first overall to Cincinnati. Then Kerry Collins goes right before you to Carolina, and then you go ninth overall to the Jets. But what do you remember about draft night? Uh, I remember it just being the uh, fulfillment of a dream. I mean, all the years that I'd put into developing my athleticism. Um, and when I was younger, I, I thought I'd want to be. I was going to be either a pro baseball or a basketball player because I was <laughs> a tall, skinny guy, kind of like. My son, who I brought me, with me uh, up here this uh, for this time here at Penn State, I was tall and thin, and you never would have pegged me for a pro football player. But I had a pro high school football coach that was very influential. He was like a father figure to me, and he kind of influenced me that he thought football might be my best sport, got me in the weight room, and so on and so forth. And um, I just remember being so relieved to be at that moment. Um, you know, all the work was in. You know, I had done not only my football career college here at Penn State but did all the things I needed to do to show the uh, you know to put all the numbers up I needed to in the combine and that type of thing and uh, I was just so happy to be at that moment you know so even though I actually expected to go to the Cleveland Browns with the 10th pick but the Jets it was kind of a surprise you know even now they still sometimes replay that uh, when I got picked and the fans booed me and all that type <laughs> of thing but I, I genuinely didn't care I just thought well I'll have to come here and win these people over by playing well you know, and hopefully helping the team uh, get get on the right track. The New York Jets select tight end from Penn State, Kyle Brady. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, our first real upset, I think, at this point in the draft. You still have that clip saved on your phone now or something like that? Oh, I don't need to. ESPN plays it. <laughs> NFL Network plays it every single year. And uh, my friends will take pictures of it or even film the TV when it's playing, and they'll, they'll send it to me and – yeah, I mean, you know, after 13 years of playing, though, and, uh, you know, being a starter for that entire time and playing on some great teams, I, I have good, good memories of my pro career as well. I want you to try to, if you can, sum up your time at Penn State, what that logo means to you, because we've seen you accomplish so much. You've talked about so much here today, and we appreciate you stopping by, but you've gone from a football player to an NFL vet to a lawyer to a pilot to accomplishing so many things in your life, but... What does that logo and the brand mean for you and kind of how it set you up for life afterwards? I think it means uh, excellence and it means uh, an extremely high standard. Um, and that was the probably, you know, to some degree, the legacy that I think and the foundation that Joe Paterno uh, laid. You know, I always remember the story uh, that he told um, in, 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 I think, books that he wrote. And I think he even said it to his uh, to us as a team. Uh, he, he was going to go on and become an attorney, become a lawyer. And that's, I think, one thing his dad had talked to him about and that uh, that would be a good profession for him. I think his dad maybe was an immigrant from Italy that came here, and his mom and dad raised him as best they could in Brooklyn, New York. And um, and then he got here and he did some grad school because Rip Angle asked him to come down from Brown University up there in uh, Rhode Island. And uh, after doing a couple of years of coaching and getting his grad degree, he said um, he called his dad and he said, Dad, I think I'm going to keep doing this. I don't know if I'm going to go to law school. And he said, well, okay. He said, that's that's fine. That's your decision. He said, just just make a difference. And, um, and and I was just talking to Mark Tate, you know, one of my former teammates from the 94 team, and, and, and I said, what, isn't that all, all every one of us wants to do? You know, I think as we get older and we start to look back a little bit more and uh, get more life to look back on, we all want to hopefully make as big a, and as good an impact as we can, first and foremost, on our own families, but then even beyond that, on, on others. And um, the excellence is, uh, you know, what, what the impact that 
uh, this place has had on every single one of us that goes out from here. Um, it's an impact that I can't overstate, an impact for the good, and uh, one that I'll, I'll always feel in some, to some degree indebted to some of the people here that, that imparted that to me um, for, for what they did. Kyle Brady, number 81, a two-time All-American Big Ten selection, consensus All-America as a senior, a member of the 1994 Rose Bowl team, and somebody that continues to make an impact not only here in Happy Valley, but for plenty of other people around the world as well. Kyle, appreciate you stopping by, and good luck the rest of the way, all right? No problem. Appreciate it being here. We'll see you next time on the Unrivaled Podcast. Unrivaled, the official podcast of Penn State football.